0: Hallelujah, Lord. We thank you, Father. We thank you for grace. We thank you for your great grace, O Lord. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, O God. If not for grace, Lord, we understand, O God, that it's not by our works. It's not by our own righteousness. It's not by our own efforts. It's not by our own merit. We thank you, Lord, for the blood of Jesus Christ. That, that atones for our sin, that makes us as white as snow. <clears throat> we thank you, Lord, for your great mercy, Lord. Father, that you have exempted us from death. Lord, that you have exempted us from the curse of the law. <clears throat> you have, Lord, you have given us life, Lord. Lord, we understand that the law could not impart life, that the law could not give us righteousness. The law could not give us eternal life, O oh God, but Lord, your grace, Lord, your blood, and your resurrection, O oh God, we thank you for this new covenant, Lord. We thank you for this eternal covenant. We thank you, Lord, according to Daniel 9 that states that it is uh, it ushered in eternal righteousness. We thank you, Lord, that we we are no longer subjects to your wrath. We are no longer under condemnation, Lord. Because through an indestructible spirit of life, we have been given the life of the new age. We have been given eternal life. And thank you, Father, that we are in right standing with you. That you are our Father and that we hide in Christ our cleft. We hide in Christ our refuge, and therefore, Lord, uh, the the wrath, the angel of death has passed over us. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We thank you that we abide in your love, and we don't abide in your wrath. Thank you, Jesus, that we're no longer children of the devil, we're no longer in the realm of the flesh, we're no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but we're in the kingdom of your dear Son. Oh, God, and it's all a gift. It's not of our own doing. Hallelujah. I ask that you would move, that you would speak, that you would instruct your sheep, your your people. God, that your word would go forth in truth, that you would illumine, that you would enlighten, that you would bring understanding, oh, God, to their minds and their hearts, oh, God, and that you would conform us all to the image of Christ, that we would come to know you more. Your word says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So may we know you more intimately, as Paul says, that I may know him and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. May we be found in you, Lord. And have your way in our lives. Give us power to overcome. Give us power, O Lord, to please you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. I'm still uh, getting over my sickness here, so... I trust that you will bear with me. And, um... My raspy voice and my... (coughs) Congested nose and all that good stuff. Um... But nevertheless, uh, I, I want to encourage us to go ahead and get our Bibles. Amen. That's that's probably a good thing, right, for a Bible study. <laughs> so, you know, you know, it's funny. Some years, well, years back, um, seven or eight years ago now, <laughs> we're at a we are at a Bible study, right? The the old church that we were attending. And, um, there's this sister, I'm not going to name her her name, just, but, um, I just, it's, it it always makes my my wife and I crack up. But, um, we're at a Bible study and, um, and, um, I forgot what the, the pastor was saying. Uh, I think because he sent out a text and I don't know what the issue was exactly. I don't remember. I think it was like he s- sent out a text that we were going to have Bible study. And I think his issue was that no one responded. And I I can't recall if he just didn't communicate himself well enough or if the sister's a little slow, which <laughs> she's not the brightest bulb in the package. Or it was an issue of both. And, and um, he said... Um, I texted everybody to come to Bible study, and um, and no one's texted me back, Where he said something like that, and, uh, he's, and um, she's all, wait, what did he say? He said something about something, something Bible study, and um, she's all, this is a Bible study? Like, she was self-doubting, but like, <laughs> she worded it in such a way like, we're obviously at a Bible study but she worded she question she asked the question of are we in a bible study <laughs> and, and then the pastor was like whoa we're in a bible study <laughs> like wow i didn't know that <laughs> i i wish i knew word for word what was said but i hope that you get the gist of that i thought it was just absolutely hilarious and it, it was just her and in the inflection in her in her voice that made it sound like she didn't even know where she was at. <laughs> like, she didn't even know what we were doing. Um, <coughs> I thought more of you were going to laugh at that, but that's <laughs> all right. Um, uh, but anyways, so we're out of Bible study. <laughs> um, I'm not insulting anyone's intelligence here. But, um Yes. I, I i i forgot where i was going oh i know yes so if if um uh, again as i've said this time and time again um if you want to follow along i'm using the niv <laughs> you get the joke but Kanye, you get the joke uh but you're you're you have a sharp intellect so if i i, I don't foresee you ever not getting a joke um how many languages do you know? Brother, what you? Sir, P- polyglot? Five. Wow, that's impressive. And I believe, what, uh, Sister Andrea, you know about, like, four? <laughs> you know, six. Wow. That's awesome. Um, you know, I remember uh I some time back I heard um oh what's the joke? Um oh what what do you call uh someone that is uh bilingual or and they're like European? It's like what do you um what do you call someone that's um I, I don't know the term the proper term for like knowing only one language. Um maybe you guys can help me out with that. Um, but what do you call someone who only knows one language and and the answer is american <laughs> that's 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 uh typically the reality right we Americans don't know our own geography, which is very sad too um and before before this group, I really didn't even know uh you know you you see those videos on Instagram or you know those reels where they go around asking people like. Americans, how many uh, countries, or, you know, if they can name three countries, I was one of those guys before this group. <laughs> so now I know a lot. So I'm like, where are those Instagram influencers coming to ask me? <laughs> okay, um, enough of my rambling. Um, so let us, let us get our Bibles again. I, I want to ask that we turn to Luke. Um, the Lord just put a verse on my heart and I, it's Luke chapter 24, verse 45. (coughs) Luke, uh, chapter 24, verse uh, 45. Yes, those are embarrassing. Did you see the one too, where the guy goes around and he asks like basic questions and a lot of the people get it wrong. And then I don't know why but for whatever reason he just like affirms he's like yes that's correct. Um I don't know if you guys seen those ones too but there's a lot of trash too going around but Luke chapter 24 verse 45 um Let's actually begin at verse 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Let me just stop there real quick. Because one of, now, I'm not going to be talking about it today. Um... I'm not going to be um, talking on the topic of eschatology, which is the the topic of end times. But let me just say this: the reason why there is such an enormous confusion today in the body of Christ relating to the topic of end times and eschatology, and I'll tell you this specific reason, is because they don't know what's written in the Law and the Prophets. I don't say that to be insulting. I don't say that to be belittling. I don't say that to be degrading in any way, shape, or form. I'm simply stating out a true observation. And the observation is this, that by and large, the modern church today do not know the Law and the Prophets. Maybe many of them know the Psalms, um, and they only know some of the Psalms. They know Psalm 23, they know Psalm 91, they know Psalm 103, and so, I, I say this not to embarrass anybody, but to, in, to, to admonish us. It's to stop highlighting only those verses that are so popularized on Hobby Lobby coffee mugs. Amen? Um, come on, somebody. I'm not hearing feedback. It, 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 it's true. Um, why is it that John 3.16 is the only one that's always popularized? Why is it that, and and see, I posted this just recently on my stories. The reason why this is important is because you have to have the whole counsel of God to grow, and sometimes the answer that we are hoping to get from God is not the answer that we need from God. That while, you know, I'm not against encouragement, what I'm against is a ministry that is driven exclusively for encouragement. Of the a true ministry is not exclusively encouragement. It is also rebuke and correction and teaching. It it is all encompassing, and you know a lot of the growth that my son enjoys as one who has two godly parents doesn't come from when we encourage him. We encourage him. But it doesn't come from our encouragement. The growth comes from correction. Yesterday I corrected my son, and I don't have to do it often. The older he gets, the less I have to do it. And that should be indicative of our lives as Christians. Is that understood? The more we grow in the Lord, the less we should be corrected by God. Doesn't mean we won't ever be corrected, but we should the correction should be less and less because you should be developing your you should be developing maturity. And amen, somebody. So what does that mean? That means is the mature, the more mature you get in the Lord, the less discouraged and sorrowful and sorrowful you, uh, you um, the less sorrow you experience. Because when you sin against the Lord, godly sorrow comes. And, and because he's placed his spirit in you, right? And as babes in Christ, they make a lot of mistakes. They're often sorrowful. That's why in Hebrews chapter 12, it says to those who tr- are trained, it says to those who receive discipline are and tra- are trained, right? That, and it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. So righteousness brings peace. So mature, the byproduct of maturity is establishment in peace and righteousness, right? But nonetheless, um, I corrected him. Now, now, I was happy because although he disobeyed, he did what I had asked of him, and it's to tell me and be honest. And I I've, I told them, if you're honest and you tell me without me finding out, the punishment will always be less, always be less than if I find out. And you know what? Parents, stick to your word when you say that. Because I remember my dad used to say that, but the punishment would always be the same. So don't be a liar. Don't be a hypocrite. When you say you'll do something as a parent, you gotta de- you gotta deliver on that promise, even if it hurts you. Because if it don't hurt, because you, you have to allow it to hurt you. Because if it don't hurt you, it hurt your children. And if you hurt your children long enough, and for uh, and for uh, for a while, they'll hurt you by by forgetting you. Um and that hurts a lot of parents. Right? And they don't find that that they don't find that out until the long run. They don't find that out until, you know, they're already old and what's done is done. Amen, somebody. But um so um the punishment, the discipline was and and, and I even affirmed my son, I said, son, I'm not even mad at you. I said I'm just disciplining you so you will learn. A- Amen somebody. And you know parents they need to stop uh uh see what a lot of parents call discipline is just really anger. They treat children as punching bags for their anger. They're just an object, they're a crash dummy. Amen that's that's not discipline. Discipline is informative, instructive and corrective. See, we have two extremes. Amen somebody. We have this liberal, whitewashed, jelly back. don't I just allow the, you know, <laughs> I was supervising yesterday at work. It was such a delight I got to see uh my students play uh uh games, uh soccer and it was just it was amazing to be there and you know, celebrate them and you know, tell them I'm proud of them and and, uh, I know they really appreciated that, but there was a parent on the bleachers and, and, uh, she said, son, do this. And he was a little kid and, and the boy said, no, and she didn't even do anything about it. I'm like, you better correct that. You better correct it. It might be cute when he's, uh, one, one year old. But he's gonna come. It's gonna come a time when he's fifteen, sixteen years old, and you can't, you can't squash that rebellion. Amen. You know why par- babies come out the way they do? Is because they don't have the strength to kill you. <laughs> and God, 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 purposed it that way that you would be physically stronger than them to. Place them in submission, because if a child had its way at 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 the peak of its immaturity, it would slap you across the face. It would subdue you. Amen. Amen. Somebody. So so this is a life lesson for those who don't have children yet and who will have them in the future uh we we're not this weak jellyback generation that don't correct that allow them to do whatever oh they're just finding their own identity love is love they you know if they want to be a princess then they they're a princess even though that this is a male and he should be playing in the dirt and tractors and <laughs> right no we're not going to feminize our children right our our boys um our females yes they're feminine and you know do, do some girls sometimes act a little you know less feminine the others sure but on the other hand we're not we're not of this generation where where we just uh um we we abuse children we beat them we don't do that either and when we do discipline it's informative it's corrective and it should not be out of anger amen it shouldn't be out of this outburst right amen somebody so you you put in put that in your pocket and hopefully um for those who don't have kids and the day that you do um but nonetheless Oh boy! I'm surely getting sidetracked here. <laughs> Y'all still here? So the the reason why a lot a lot of the you know we we don't properly understand eschatology is because we don't know the law and the prophets. Oh, but the point I was making about that is that's how my son is growing. That's how children grow is through correction through knowledge. You know what it says in Proverbs? That the fool will not be corrected by mere words. You know, in the kingdom, you have an option to either deal with God or God deal with you. So if you don't listen to him, you don't heed his words. that That's what the option we have. God tells us and says, do you want to listen willfully? Or do you want to learn the hard way? Do you want to deal with me what I've already told you, or do you want me to deal with you? And his dealings with you is in love, doubtless. That is, that is sure. But it is a whole lot more painful. So when when I'm teaching on things that isn't, you know, you guys see my stories? I hope you did, with the uh the white Jesus. He's peeking out saying, I love you. <laughs> I only got one reaction to it. It's fine, but um I was saying that we 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 just love those, you know, sentimental Jesuses, right? We love it. Because when our life is a mess, we want Jesus to peek out and say, I love you. <laughs> and I really dislike it because what we're we have a false caricature of Jesus, that he is this. Uh, Indo-European pushover that is so desperate for your love. He's not desperate and he's not weak. He is a sovereign and he's Lord. Certainly he loves those who are in him, who abide in his love. Amen? But for those who are outside of his love, abide in his wrath. Amen. What does the text say? Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. But we don't tell, we we don't preach that, do we? We always tell the world, John 3, 16, when are we going to tell them uh, uh, Genesis? Or you can go to Romans where Paul cites it in Genesis. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. You know, where people say, God hates you you know where a lot of people you know you ever see those videos where they say they hate god where's the preacher that says well god hates you too oh how dare you Christians don't say that no 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 biblically correct Christians say that what did paul say when the when they were persecuting what did god what did paul say to the high priest when the he, against the law, had Paul struck. And Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Right? And a lot of people say that Paul sinned there. Paul committed a sin there because Paul then said, oh, I'm sorry, because the law says you ought not to curse the ruler of your people. Do you think Paul was so ignorant that he couldn't infer that from the garments that the the ruler wore <laughs> and all you think Paul was ignorant being a Jew being very familiar with the law having studied having sat at the a feet, a, a feet of Gamaliel himself and having been educated do you think Paul was ignorant that that was the the ruler of the people no he wasn't ignorant Paul was being sarcastic oh i forgot you're the ruler that's what Paul was saying but he was also in effect saying you're really not the ruler Christ is the chief ruler of the new Israel does that make sense but where are the preachers today saying that god will strike you you whitewashed wall right but we we don't we don't hear that but yet it's in our bibles I hope this is not falling on deaf ears. (coughs) Some people might retort and say, well, that's the only time it was found in the Bible. No. How about when uh, Paul also said uh, to the... uh, Simon the sorcerer, he says, you son of the devil, how long will you pervert the ways of righteousness? Behold, the hand of the Lord is against you. It says, Paul being filled with the Holy Spirit. So it qualifies that so you know that this wasn't a thing of his flesh. Because I've heard two people, I've I've, I've heard two different views to try to explain that away. Either Paul was in the flesh or Paul used his apostolic authority, which was intrinsic. and And he could have done it either uh with the holy spirit or without the holy spirit as if like i hope that makes sense paul's an apostle and he has authority but he kind of abused his authority so i've heard those two different explanations but the text t- states explicitly in acts paul being filled with the holy spirit said you son of the devil How long will you pervert the ways of righteousness? Behold, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you will be blind for a season. And it says, At that moment, a mist came and he was blinded. So Paul cursed him. But nonetheless, um, let me try to go, uh, uh, let me try to stick to this here. Y'all listening? Y'all understand? See, the hard things need to be said, the The hard things need to be said because it will condition you. It will either make you bitter or it will make you better. And this is why this, it's not, it's not very popular, but I'm not here for popularity. I'm, I'm hopefully, hopefully hoping to see that we continue to grow Uh, with exposure to these ideas and to these teachings, right? And so in, in having the word preached to you, you know what's happening is your mind is being transformed. Amen. See, it's not enough that you memorize scripture. Scripture has to shape and mold your understanding. That's what true repentance is. I hope you know that. See, there's the initial act of repentance when you come to Christ, And you you let the old life go. But your old mind doesn't leave overnight. You have all your biases, all your culture, all all that your life has conditioned you to become and has conditioned your mind to think like so that once you come to Christ, yes, you made the conscious decision to give your life to him and you repented in that regard, but it's also a continual act of repentance, not, oh, I'm sorry for my sin, but it means I'm cha- which that is true, don't get me wrong, but repentance, the word metanoia means I'm changing my mind. And that's why it always feels like, oh, geez, here we go again. I'm confronted about another thing that I'm thinking that is wrong. Well, yes. Because your mind has to come into conformity to the word of God. And this is why people I know get so annoyed with my stories and my posts. Because it's like, oh, he just posted another thing I don't like. Well, why do you think you don't like it? I'm not saying necessarily us here, but I'm saying that general. Why do you think people don't like it? Is because there's an area of their mind that they haven't yielded to the Holy Ghost and to the Scriptures, and so instead of submitting to it, they'll say, "I'm gonna just ignore it. I don't want to like that because I don't like what God's Word says anyhow." And you know what? And to make my conscience feel better, I'm just gonna pin the blame on him, and I'm just gonna say he's misinterpreting God. So that way, I can still go, I can still leave believing that I accurately understand God. So I'm still going to say, Jesus is coming back. I'm going to get raptured and sucked into the air, right? Get raptured from responsibility. And see, you know why people always, when it comes to stuff like this, say, let's just agree to disagree. What they're saying in effect is, I don't want to believe the biblical Jesus. I don't want the work of changing my mind. It's too much. Well, I'm sorry. Repent. And and I'm not holding up my Bible like one of them, you know, Westboro uh, Bible-thumping, angry preachers. Repent for the kingdom of... (laughs) Those guys kind of annoy me. They don't even know what repentance means. Again, as I've said, repentance means change your mind. It may not even accompany tears. It may mean, oh, I didn't even know that. Wow. Now I see. Ah, that's repentance, is you are obtaining insight and thereby changing your mind. So when I keep talking about controversial things, it's not because I'm trying to be annoying or create enemies. But look at what he says right here, verse 45, then he opened their minds so they can understand the scriptures. He opened what? their minds Um (coughs) (coughs) look it let let me let me show you verse thirty Um Let let's also go to verse uh 25 actually I'm sorry um, it says he said to them how foolish are you and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken you know you can be a Christian and be slow to believe Three years after coming Bible study, you still don't get under you still not understand. You have to pay tithes. (laughs) Right? You might be fast in track, fast at running. The first one done in your in your physics class or history class. I'm done, teacher. But you're slow to believe the word of God. You don't understand. You're slow to believe that the rapture is a false doctrine. You're slow to believe that not all in the church have authority. Right? How foolish are you? You are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So it's not about what John MacArthur said. It's not about what people... No, it's about what the prophets have spoken. And so if I'm showing us what the prophets have said, then it behooves us to believe the prophets. Are we going to, you know, are we going to believe today's, you know, the, the, there's uh, sadly so-called Bible teachers that are teaching that God used evolution to bring about humanity. Do you, do you know that? You know why? Because they're founded upon the doctrine of of the scientists and the philosophers with Charles Darwin as the chief cornerstone. And because they want to appear intellectually, uh, uh, um, uh, they want to appear intellectual amongst their other scholarly and academic peers, They fold. They don't fold to fornication or idolatry per se, but they're folding to a false doctrine because they don't want to be ostracized from their philosophical synagogues. Kind of like uh, Nicodemus, right? Coming to Jesus at night. Oh, I still got a thing with Jesus when everybody else don't see me, but I still attend the philosophical synagogues, right? Or Mars Hill or whatever. I'm still entertaining some wrong idea about God. Amen? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So the scriptures are pointing to Christ, both law and the prophets. So now, and again, I said I'm not talking on it, but people always say, oh, we're going to get raptured out of this world. Okay, this is one thing I always challenge people. Show me that in the law and the prophets. Show me one verse, I'll wait. Because they always go to Thessalonians and they don't even understand what Thessalonians means because they don't understand what the law of the prophets mean. So they think we're gonna get there's gonna be a mega vacuum. Okay, show me that in the law of the prophets. Where is that at? I'll wait. Google it. Use a search engine. Use AI. Show me where it's at. Where people are going into the sky. You won't find it. Okay, so where did Jesus get his eschatology from? Where did Paul get his eschatology from? The problem is that we're more Western in our thinking and we haven't repented because we don't want to repent. We don't like that word. So that when we approach a text like Thessalonians and Matthew 24 and Luke 21, we read our thoughts into the text, which is a prime example of what we like to call narcegesis narcissistic narcissistic meaning lover of self right have you ever heard of the term exegesis drawing out of the text right allowing the true the text to interpret the text well narcissism is where you're reading yourself into the Bible and a lot of, I'm not saying people do that intentionally, but that's what happens is because we think less biblically. than we would like to think we actually do. Does that make sense? Or is it, or, you know... Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as he was, if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over, so he went into to stay with them. Um, Verse 30, but he was at the table with them. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. You know why? Because if you know, you know how that happened. Because if they were persuaded, because Jesus appeared to them in another form, if they were it, see, initially they thought that the that the Messiah would not rise again, but since Jesus expanded to them the scriptures concerning his resurrection from the law of the prophets and had their theology corrected, now their mind was positioned to actually see that he was the Christ. You know, I remember reading C.S. Lewis' a book called Miracles. And uh, in his first chapter, he talks about a lady. He only met one lady who had claimed to see a ghost, which we know was a demon. And she was an atheist. A materialist materialist. When I say materialist it doesn't mean that she's buying a bunch of handbags from Gucci or whatever that brand is, but a materialist is the one that believes that there's nothing beyond the material realm. There's only that there is no spirit realm. But yet she said that she seen a demon and now because are we following? Because i I've, I've feel in the spirit that some of you are distracted or derailed somehow. So, um, but her thinking precluded the possibility of spiritual encounters. So, despite the fact she had this obvious encounter with the spirit, the demon, because of her materialistic belief. That's all there is to this life is the material realm. She was led to conclude that she hallucinated. So, seeing is not believing. That's why you got to repent. That's why I don't try to prove atheists, I don't try to prove cessationists. You know, you, you see that story that I posted recently? Uh, not the story, the meme, where where some sort of cartoon characters go like this, uh, extending his hand, there's a butterfly on it, and it says, uh, medically supported uh, healings, uh, medically verified and supported healings through prayer, and then it says cessationist. Ah, is this a demon? (laughs) Oh, man. Those guys annoy me. Because they are willfully blind. And and they are so ego-filled, egotistical, that they'd rather believe their own head and John MacArthur and John Calvin and Justin Peters and all those other toxic uh, preachers than the scriptures. I'd rather believe what I want to believe about God because I'm forming in my own mind a God of my own image rather than the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Does that make sense? <clears throat> because the moment they open that up and admit that there's there are these encounters with God that I'm deficient in and I, I, that's absent in my life, they have to admit that they're infants in the realm of the spirit. They don't want to do that because we got our degrees and our we're scholars. We know God. They don't know God. They know about God, but they don't know God. Okay, if you knew God, then why is it that you don't know you don't know who's a true child of God? Because if I if I come to you preaching to you and the anointings on me, you'll say I'm of the devil. Oh, so you know God enough to know who. And you don't know his children you know God enough to know if I perform the miraculous in front of you you're gonna say it's the devil who are you sounding more like Paul or the Pharisees
1: Amen. so
0: so how do you know God because you certainly don't know when he's moving you don't know you don't know the 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 uh uh the the moves of the spirit you don't know what you're not familiar with his language? You know theology. And now theology is not bad, but when theology, a heart that is callous and unsubmitted with sound theology, never leads you to God. <coughs> But verse 32, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? You want to know how the anointing is not present? Is your heart never burns. That's why when you listen to a bunch of dry guys, scholars, it's like, oh, right? You want to fall asleep. You might even feel guilty because it's like, why? how, How am I falling asleep under the word of God? Now, don't get me wrong, sometimes people are so spiritually apathetic that no matter how anointed a minister is they they're just uh, they need to be woken up right so so the anointing needs to reach the heart, but a lot of preaching today is just formed in the head, so it only reaches the head. Does that make sense? Now, let, let me, uh, there was one other verse that I wanted to focus on, uh, uh Oh right here no I, I I won't touch that the the point that I was wanting to make is that see that that is what prophets do yes jesus is is God in the flesh, but remember he he operated in the the office of of a prophet, and what the the function of a prophet see what sorcerers do sorcerers and witches and warlocks are the antithesis of of a prophet they're the complete opposite they're the counterfeit of a prophet so witches and warlocks their intention is to veil you to veil you from the mind of god to veil you from the the truth of god does that make sense Whereas prophets seek to open your mind to the truth of God. Does that make sense? Or no? Are we are we veiled? But I'll read it one last time. Um. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Did they open up their own mind? No. You know, people often today pride themselves so much that they don't need to be informed. And it's pride. Oh, I just, I just, I'll just read my own Bible. I'm not discouraging Bible reading. You know, someone yesterday on Instagram reached out to me asking about deliverance. And, uh, because they've been having tormenting dreams of snakes and stuff. And I'm, and I'm like, yeah, you know, it's not a good sign at all. It, uh, it, it. You're more than likely, you know, in need of deliverance um, if if this is perpetual. Don't get me wrong. You can get attacked in your dreams and stuff. But if this is persistent, then it's a sign that something's off. But um, they're asking if they could get deliverance. And I said, look, here, here's my thing. Um... I'm not interested in just having a a, a deliverance ministry. <clears throat> I you know, there's some people out there that just love to cast out devils. And that's cool. Don't get me wrong, but I told this individual, I said, look, if a young child comes up to me and says they're hungry, I'm willing to feed them. But my next question to them is, "Who are your parents?" Do you have parents? Where are you, where are you coming from? And if they say I don't have any parents, um, well, I would report them to C. I would take them to CPS, right? Uh, Child Protective Services. But in my but let's just say that wasn't a factor. Let's say I couldn't do that. I would say, well. Uh, are you, you know, I'm willing to parent you or are you willing to go into a good home to be parented, right? Because because if you feed a child that's roaming around by themselves once, that's not going to help them. It will help them in the moment, but there's the next problem of who is going to cover you. Where are you going to continually get fed and sheltered and clothed and taught how to live so that when you get older yourself, you can adequately parent your children in a healthy way? Does that make sense? So I have no interest in just, oh, going around, let me preach you, let me give you this cool little insight, do that, this, that, and the other, right? Right? I'm not let me put it this way I'm not someone to give out handouts i i i am old, I'm look because I know that not long after that if someone gets delivered and they and they're not under someone that shows them how to live righteously that can pray for them to counsel them to father them, they're going to be right back in the square one and what what does the Bible say that when demons leave? Then you know it brings with itself seven more deadlier than itself, so that the second state of the individuals worse than at the first right and that's the problem and 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 when this individual said oh i uh." And I'm not mad. I'm not upset at it. I'm just, you know, it's it's just a bit disheartening to see where the minds of the church are today. Uh, but they said, I don't want you to think I'm rude or anything. But uh, I'm not interested. I'm like, that's fine. I I you know, if think of it this way. <laughs> y'all y'all still f- listening? You still following? There was this brother that said. Uh, uh, Something about uh, my text was real long. Uh, because I, I personally texted something to an individual that of whom I'm in connection with to give them insights. <coughs> so I've taken my time out for that individual. But since I already texted, I'm like, you know what? There's some other people I think need to be confronted with this so that they can change their mind. And this this brother said uh, that text was a bit too long, and I said, "Hey, no worries." I said, um, um, "You know, look at it as uh, wisdom is better than jewels, and nothing that thou can, canst desire can compare with her," <laughs> in Proverbs. So uh, I don't I don't meet too many people that say, "Hey, you gave me too much money." <laughs> the problem is our thinking. Right. Let me let me let me put in this perspective. Let's say someone here wanted to become a lawyer. And a professional lawyer said, I will teach you everything you need to know. I'm the best in town or whatever. I I will get you there. Just be consistent. Are you going to decline that? Right? I'll pay for your education. A fool would decline that. But you know, you know what happens when we cut—we grow up as entitled brats—is that we raise a generation that is so upset and offended they need to go to school. Yeah, that's why the blacks. In the 1800s like Frederick Douglass gave up his food so he could have the little white boys teach him A B's and C's. Now we got a lot of black kids in Chicago and Hispanics out in South LA who want to claim hood and all this other trash and they don't want to get educated. They're fools. Foolish. Tax dollars going to for all intents and purposes, a free education for them. And they drop out, and they become no better than their dads that are not in the picture. Well, people don't want to hear this, but it's true. But look at what did their ancestors do in the 1800s. They gave up all that they had so that they could. What was the white man doing before? The white man denied the black man an education to keep them oppressed. Isn't that true? Come on, y'all ain't talking to me. you offended at this? The white man used to oppress the black man. Now, what, 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 what? Are the generation today doing? They don't want to get educated. And guess what? You remain oppressed. Because even back then, the blacks knew if I can get educated, I will be in a far more advantageous position than I now am, than I'm not in currently. And so, what happens to the church today? When they don't want to get educated, they don't want to get fathered, they don't want to be raised up, they remain oppressed. And they're offended that they have to get schooled. It's true. Amen. but this this young individual i said you know I said i'm not offended i'm just i i'm i'm just I'm sad for you if that's how you and there's nothing for me to there's nothing more for me to say because and I said and if it's not with me, just make sure you get connected with somebody because you can't just wander around by yourself." And be a vagabond. You can't be a cane. You have no certain dwelling place. If you're not settled, you can't remain long enough to be established. It just works that way. I'm sorry. But we got a fatherless generation. That's what we have. And we have a lot of rebels that are educating people or indoctrinating people on youtube and saying that it's okay it's not and uh it's it's saddening it really is um, yes, so you know let let me let me um does it make sense i know i know i'm not angry i just I I say what I say with passion because I just know that I know. I can already see the failed trajectory of an individual by t- by their confession to me, what they believe. I I already see it. I can already connect the dots, and I've seen it too many times. And you know, a lot of times people feel justified because of their trust issues. That they don't have to. And let me tell you, your lack of, your distrust and your cynicism and all your skepticism does not justify you. Your trauma doesn't justify you. It helps people to understand you. Yes, I get it. But having a bad marriage... In the past doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Having a bad father in the past doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Having a bad pastor in the past doesn't mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater. You don't do that. Are there bad people? Yes, I understand. I get it. But God, that's where surrender comes. To say, Lord, I'm surrendering this area of my heart to you. Right? That, that I, I want to protect because I've been hurt in this area. That's where the, ho- the Holy Ghost needs to bring you healing. Um, <coughs> but Jesus was expounding the law of the prophets. So this is a principle. When you read in the New Testament, you have to ask yourself this question. Where is this concept found in the law of the prophets? Paul said, I, I I preach all the law of the prophets in Acts chapter 28. And this is precisely what Jesus is doing. In fact, when you read the Pauline epistles, they're, der- they're drawing from the Old Testament. Now, I want to show you something. Um, and now, <laughs> that was a lot of the groundwork. I'm going to try to get through this quickly just so that you guys can become exposed to this. Um, Um, the truth of scripture amen so i want us to turn to romans chapter 6 verse 14 because i've said you have to keep in mind when you're reading the text you have to ask yourself where is this at in the old testament Because Paul is a Jew, speaking Jewish terminology, not Western terminology. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. You know, the reason why I'm coming here is because it's so often abused. It's so often misunderstood. uh, Largely by a lot of these reformers and Western evangelicals. They don't understand what it means to be under grace. The America don't understand what it means to be under grace. And so they say, they always say, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. And they don't understand the implications of that. So I want us to turn uh, Romans chapter 6 verse 14. It says, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. You read that? Let's read it again. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. See, one of the things that, let me correct this first of all. People say, well, I'm not under the law. Uh, I'm under grace. As if, and, and a lot of people do this and it's wicked. Uh, the excuses all my failures. Excuses all my sin. As if there's no standard in the New Testament. And and you know, a lot of times people say this. Oh, well, God knows that we're sinners and that we can't even keep his word. So we're under grace. You know, his grace covers me. And they don't understand what they're saying. I really don't think that they do. <coughs> no, first of all, Grace empowers you to do what could not be done in the law. The law could not impart power or life. Amen. However, the grace of God empowers us to keep what those who under the law in themselves And by themselves could not keep. So the law. See the law didn't even take away sin. The law only pacified. The wrath of God. The sin still remained. Did you know that? The sins that were committed under the old covenant still remained oh, man so much Amen. let me show you this uh real quickly Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15 Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15 you know there's a difference between sinning under the law and sinning under grace there's a difference. And Jesus came to die for the sins that were committed under the law. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So Jesus came, right? See, anyone outside of Christ is under the law of sin and death. They're under condemnation. They're not under the new covenant. They're not under grace. They're under under death, condemnation, and law. And so when people sit outside of Christ, they're abiding in death. <coughs> the strength of the sin is the law. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, Jesus came to die for the sins that were committed under that law. Right, so that we don't taste death, so that we don't die. But here's the thing before the new covenant, right, when they sinned, their sins were not removed. Their sins, what does it say in Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin? Isn't that what Hebrews says? So, Insofar as they were under the old covenant, their sins were not removed. So all those saints of old, now don't get me wrong, they were doing what they were told to do and commanded to do by God. and, And so they were being obedient to that previously existent system. And they were looking forward to Christ. It says in Hebrews 11, that they themselves did not yet receive the promises, but welcomed them from afar. So they did not receive life. I hope you know that. They didn't receive uh, uh, the life of the new age under the old covenant because the law could not impart that life insofar as the sin remained, Right? It, the blood of bulls and goats just temporarily covered the sin, and it removed sin. Does that make sense? So if sin brings forth death, until that sin could be removed, life could not be given. So therefore, it was of necessity for Christ to come, die, rise again, ascend, and return To do away with sin. And that's what it says in Hebrews. Quoting Jeremiah. Then the deliverer shall come out of Zion. And remove transgression. But nonetheless. um, Going back to Romans chapter 6 verse 14. It says. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you're not under the law. But under grace. Now. Um. Are we still here? Still following? Hold on. Let me try to wrap this up. Excuse me. It's hard to it's hard to sufficiently explain just because of where we're at today, so much has to be unpacked, so much has to be um corrected. Um but now I want to show us something. Romans chapter seven, verse one through six. Do you know do you not know, brothers and sisters? From speaking to those who know the law. That the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has... Well, let let me go to verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, now I want you to understand there is a reoccurring motif. There is a reoccurring theme for both law and grace. Law has a set of assumptions and implications. Grace has a set of assumptions and implications. So when we speak of law, I guarantee you, people limit it. Well, depending on who you ask, their answer might differ. Because the generic word law, the Greek word namos, can refer to different things depending on the context. Some people might think that it's referring exclusively to the Ten Commandments, right? This is where a lot of a confusion arises. Some people think that it uh, refers to uh, the kosher laws or Levitical law, right? And so they have a very limited view when, when, when asked to unpack what what is Paul even meaning here. Okay? Now, what you find as reoccurring themes is when grace is mentioned, right? Life is mentioned, the spirit. So spirit is correspondent to grace. Law is correspondent to flesh. Flesh, natural, right? Law. What the eye can see, spirit. What the eye cannot see, grace. So what Paul is contrasting here are not only uh, grace and law, but the Levitical priesthood, the body of Moses, the Melchizedek priesthood, and the body of Christ. The inferior covenant and priesthood, the superior covenant and priesthood the inferior mediator, namely Moses, the superior mediator, Christ. And he thoroughly expands that and develops that, well, not Paul specifically, but the writer of Hebrews does in the book of Hebrews. You read from chapter 1 and following, he establishes the superiority of the gospel, of Christ Christ. Of the name he inherited, that was better than the angels. To, uh, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. and uh, But unto the son, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. He establishes the superiority of Christ over Moses. for Ma- For Moses was faithful in all God's house, but Christ is a son over God's house. Whose house are we? if we continue steadfastly in the things that we've heard. So now what 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 does this have anything what does this have to do with uh our talk today the teaching today you still following it is because when Paul speaks of the flesh right says for when we were in the realm of the flesh wait hold on all right here So my brothers and sisters, you also (coughs) died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were now, babe, if you can give me verse uh, five in the ESV. Excuse me. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Okay, what does Paul mean? Is Paul literally is he referring to the physical body? No. Because there was no difference in the time of Paul of of the inauguration of the new covenant and the time before the new covenant had even come. And yet Paul is saying that when they were under the law, they were still in the flesh. What he is not saying is under the law, I was in a natural body and now under grace, I'm in a spiritual orb. <laughs> I'm not in a body anymore, guys. I'm not in the flesh. That's not what Paul was talking about. You have to understand. So when he says you died to the flesh, how did we die? Because we died with Christ when he died. And so that we might be made partakers of the body of Christ. Okay? Now, when you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, so what what happened? What is Paul says in Colossians uh, and also here in Romans? That we were baptized into the likeness of his death. So we die with Christ. We're baptized. It says, for all those who are baptized into his death have put on Christ. This is why Paul says, put off the old man and put on the new man. He's not talking about man as you. He's talking about put off the old Adam and put on the new Adam. Put off the old man. We were in a, uh, uh we we're before we were in a corporate body. Now we're in a new corporate body. First uh, Corinthians chapter ten. So we were baptized into Christ, were we not? Under the new covenant. Well, under the Old Covenant, they were baptized into Moses. We were baptized in a new body that we might be married to another. They were baptized into that body, right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What do you mean they were baptized into Moses? So what we cannot do is we cannot ignore that verse and say, "Ah, I don't know what it means. But all I know is what it cannot mean is what I don't want it to mean. (laughs) You know, see, this is where, remember, going back to Luke 24, it would take for us to read the law and the prophets for us to actually understand the law and the prophets it will take for us to read the Law and the Prophets, for us to understand the Apostles. Because we can't come with a clean slate and like, oh, I know what Paul's talking about here. With my uh, Roman Greco understanding, my 21st century westernized uh, understanding, no. Because you already have a set of lens on, so no matter how much you read this verse, you're going to still read what, you, what you've been preconditioned to read into the verse. Okay, so, so so what is the historical context of this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or of Paul's reference in this passage? What is the historical context? <coughs> who gave the law and who was the mediator of that law? What did the law signify? The law signified a covenant. And Moses was a mediator of that covenant. Okay? So they were baptized into the mediator. Because they couldn't go to God directly, so they had to be in Moses. And now people say I don't understand that stuff. That's not it's not nonsense because it's nonsense to you because you don't think like a Jew. You think how we think today literal material all that stuff not giving proper respect to how the ancients actually thought is that understood so they were in the body of moses and what commanded that covenant so let let us turn to um Hebrews chapter 8. So remember Paul says in Romans chapter 6 verse 14, you are not under law but under grace. Right? Well, let's turn to um, Hebrews chapter 8. Let's begin at verse 1. Now the main point of what we Our saying is this, we do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. So what he's saying here is that we have a a superior high priest who is Jesus, who doesn't serve in the earthly tabernacle, as did Moses, as did Aaron, as did the Levitical priest. The Lord Jesus, our High Priest, serves in the true tabernacle. And by the way, you remember when Jesus said in John fourteen, "I go and prepare a place for you." Right. Uh, he was preparing. He was preparing a dwelling. Not on earth as people so often say that he will. He was preparing a dwelling in there, right? Who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being, or as some translation says, not by human hands. Now you correlate that with Isaiah 66, and where did God say? He says, where will my dwelling place be? He says, have not my hands made all these things and they have come into being? Right? So, well, um, I'll leave that there. But continuing forward, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so is necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. Okay, so I'll keep reading. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. (coughs) Now, if you go and check that verse that the writer of Hebrews is quoting about Moses in Exodus, it's in the same context where God told Moses, build everything after the pattern of which I've shown you. So that I may dwell among them, did God? Did you? See, did they see God physically? They did not see God physically, but yet He tabernacled among them. But that tabernacle was an earthly tabernacle, and was a copy and shadow of the true tabernacle of in heaven, of which Christ is a mediator in. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1, if this earthly tabernacle, referring to the temple, is destroyed, we have a building by God in the heavens. Amen. This is why when Jesus spoke about the dwelling place that he he was going to prepare, they said, How will we know where you're going? And then Jesus says, "I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life." Do you know? You can read this in Josephus, um, in the first century, that the certain sections within the temple, the outer court was referred to as the way, the inner court was referred to as the uh, uh, the truth, and the inner court, the holiest of all, was referred to the life, because that's where the presence of God was dwelling. And that's why in Revelation it says that the that the Christ himself is the temple. That there will be no need for a temple for Jesus the Christ is himself the temple. And we hide in him. So but nonetheless continuing on um so under the law it gave prescription for the pattern that constituted the earthly tabernacle but under grace we are no longer of the shadow and the copy we're in the reality there is a full realized reality not that that we don't approximate through the flesh through the natural through what our eye can see this is why paul in the second corinthians chapter 5 verse 1 The same passage that I cited where he says that if this earthly tabernacle is destroyed, that we have a building from God. He says, therefore, we do not walk by faith, but by sight. Because under the old covenant, it required no faith to see the blood spattered on the altar. However, today we cannot see the blood on the altar. We walk by faith. We don't walk by what we see. Why? Because Paul said that which is transient. He says that which is temporal. Y'all following? He says, that which, he says, for we don't walk by faith, not for we walk by faith, not by sight for that, which is, uh, hold on. How does he say this? Mm. Okay, right here. Um, Verse 18 of chapter 4, which is the previous verse to the one mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1 where he says if the earthly tabernacle is destroyed we have a building from God so you continue the logical flow of thought verse 18 so we fix our eyes on what we so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal this is why he tells you what is the temporal. For we know that if the earthly tent, he's referring to the temple, which we can see, we know that if that's destroyed, and we know it's destroyed, will be destroyed because it's the thing that is temporal. If it wasn't temporal, it wouldn't be destroyed. He says, so it, We have a building from God eternal in the heavens because what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen, the sanctuary in heaven, is eternal. Does that make sense? And Paul is echoing directly from Isaiah 66, which is the new heavens, the new earth, the the dwelling of God, not made by hands. Have not my hands made all these things, says the Lord, and they have come into being. Um, but nonetheless, uh, continuing forward, go, going back to Hebrews, uh, I'm kind of getting sidetracked off what the point that I'm making, is that under the law, right, Moses was given commands and prescriptions of how to build the tabernacle. Amen. Y'all still following? This is why I said all I did earlier because the word of God touches on topics that... (coughs) That isn't everybody's favorite, um, but how many of you know it's not about favorites? It's about uh, learning what God wants us to learn, and He has it in the Bible for a reason, and it's not so you can ignore it. <laughs> I hope I hope we know that. Like He didn't say, uh, you know, let, meditate on the law of the Lord, but really only the ones that you like. I'll give you a pass. You're my favorite child. (laughs) He didn't say that. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. How much scripture? The ones you highlighted in your Bible? No. All scripture is breathed out by God. And so, you know what, I, I, I'm I convinced that the church would probably be in a much better place today if we actually started giving attention to the scriptures that pastors most often don't ever preach on. Because, you know what, it was good enough for Paul and Peter to, to, to refer to those passages, so why aren't pastors today doing it? You know why? Because, and I don't say this to be belittling, we have an illiterate culture and an ignorant culture in the church that don't know Bible. So everybody becomes so disinterested and finds it distasteful to hear what God communicated to the ancients. What does the Bible say in Proverbs? Seek for the ancient paths. Right? So stop Wanting to become so modernized. Modern isn't always better. Right? Modern is not always better. Modern food. Genetically modified junk. Is not better. Than what our ancestors ate. I don't care. If. 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 Honey bunch uh, or fruit loops is your favorite. It's not better. I don't think fruit loops is better than the fatted calf. <laughs> that wasn't injected with steroids. Oh you you guys really you guys are hard this this morning, man. Tell you that. <clears throat> But, gosh, what does he say? Verse 6, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. Verse 13, by calling this covenant new, He has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Uh, By the way, I hope you know at the time that the writer of Hebrews wrote this, the law did not yet disappear. It was in the process. And when did Jesus tell us that the law would disappear? And every jot and tittle fulfilled Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, at the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth, which is the new creation, of which Paul said he was a partaker of in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which happens to be the same exact context that he says that if the earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. For if any man be in Christ, he is the new creation. What creation, Isaiah 66, the new heavens and new earth that the Lord makes with his own hands. Right. But. Again, the law was not vanished away with. Now, I'm not even to touch on that. Um, but the point I'm trying to make here is in this passage, Moses is making a copy in a shadow of the true sanctuary. Does that make sense? It tells us that there' very explicitly so when when remember as I said earlier that between the two covenants that there there are distinctions and in those distinctions you have reoccurring themes law and flesh, grace and spirit law and natural grace and spirit right law and levitical grace. Melchizedek, law, Moses, grace, Jesus. Yes. (coughs) Law, seen, grace, unseen. So I'll be coming to a close. Let me show you this. In John chapter four, verse 21. So the law commanded worship that could be seen by the human eye. You could see the tabernacle. You could see the altar. You could see the animal sacrifice. You could see the blood on the altar. You could see all of that. It was in a specific location. And the priesthood was derived after natural, or let's say, fleshly ancestry. The priesthood in the new is not after natural ethnic ancestral line. It's by the spirit. How did they worship before? By the flesh. How, how, where did they go? Remember, flesh and natural are used synonymously. So they naturally went to the temple to offer the sacrifice. They naturally put the blood on the altar. They naturally did all these things after the flesh. They naturally became priests after their ancestral line. But the Bible tells us that in Christ There is no longer male, nor female, nor Greek, nor Jew. What does it say in Galatians chapter 6, verse 15 and 16? For circumcision profits nothing, but what matters, he says, is the new creation. For we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You beginning to see, how this is all linking together. Amen. So John chapter 4. Verse uh, uh, 21. He tells us. Um, oh, is it 21? No, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm at five. I'm sorry. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, if people are saying, because I hear this all the time by dispensationalists, Jesus is going to return to earthly Jerusalem and another temple will be built. Why is Jesus himself saying the complete opposite of what people are saying today? Because he's saying the time is coming when you will not worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. And they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Grace, law came through Moses, the Bible says in John chapter 1, I believe, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Law came through Moses, there's a contrast, and the contrast is significant and purposeful because the, John wants you to understand there is a vast difference between the two covenants. Law came through Moses, which only served as a pattern and a shadow a pattern of the uh, of of the shadow and old, right? A pattern of of what is in heaven, it's only a shadow and a type. But in the new covenant under grace, we worship by the spirit. Does that make sense? <coughs> Amen. So. So let let me let me give these last remarks and then. Because I need you to understand the point that this all leads to. Um, looking at Hebrews chapter, uh, 12, uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 13. Now, let, let me show you this actually in verse chapter 12 first. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So Jesus told us in John 4 that we would not worship in earthly Jerusalem. Earthly Jerusalem represented a covenant. And Galatians chapter 4 tells us this. In fact, Paul states very emphatically and explicitly, he says, for he says for the present city Jerusalem corresponds with bondage and the children of bondage and what placed the children of bondage in bondage the law the apostles made this very clear that the law not impart life couldn't give life couldn't establish righteousness couldn't remove sin And those who were under the law, according to Hebrews chapter 2, were all their lifetime subject to bondage and the fear of death. Why were they afraid of death when they were under the law? Because the law couldn't give life. And so they therefore abided in death. Okay? Now, the earthly Jerusalem, right? Of which Jesus said, "We will no longer worship." Also, represented a covenant, and we see this in Hebrews chapter twelve, verse eighteen. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses says, I am trembling with fear. Can anybody tell me what the relevance and the importance of that context is? What mountain is he referring to there? <clears throat> Mount Sinai. Exactly. And what was given on Mount Sinai? The law. Yes which established the covenant. And in that covenant and law, of which Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, the very first verse I cited, of which we're not under, we're not under that law, it gave prescriptions for temple worship, for a submission to the Levitical priesthood, your offerings to them, Okay? And so writer of Hebrews is saying, look, you haven't come to that mountain. We're not after that covenant. We've come to a new mountain. And the mountain is Mount Zion. So let me ask us this question. Can that be said and applied to us? Have we come unto that mountain? Have we come unto Mount Zion? If so, how so? If I'm in America If Sister Amir is in the Philippines, if boy is in South Africa, how can we all approximate to Mount Zion? Could it be in John 4, that it it has anything to do with John 4, that we would worship the Lord by the Spirit, that the time would come when we would not go to Jerusalem to worship? We the same Jerusalem that the law that was given, the covenant that was given on Mount Sinai had commanded such worship. Does that make sense? The law given through the inferior mediator, namely Moses, who established that covenant by blood. That commanded temple worship. Hey, you know, uh, you guys bring your offerings uh you know, bring it to the Levitical priest, do this, do that, right, and you guys will be able to see the blood, you guys will be able to see all these things, but Paul, in contrast, is saying, "Hey, we're not under that sinai, we're not under that covenant. we've come to a different mountain, we're not under law, we're under grace. We walk by faith and not by sight for what is seen at the time in which the writers wrote which was referring to the temple, which is seen, that's temporal. It's going to be destroyed in AD 70. But what is unseen is eternal. And it's lasting forever. Why is it forever? Because unlike the first covenant that came through the flesh, the new covenant was instantiated and inaugurated by the indestructible life of the spirit that lasts forever. Jesus put away sin for once and for all, right? And he lives forever to make intercession. He will never die. He tasted death for all and he, no, he lives forevermore. So therefore the covenant is remaining and it remains forevermore because Jesus lives forevermore. Moses died, Aaron died, the Levitical priest died, but Jesus lives forever. Does that make sense? So, look at Hebrews chapter 13. And you know how he says right here in, in Hebrews chapter 12, that you have come to the city of the living God? You know, that city was the city that Abraham actually longed for, but did not enter himself. People fail to realize that the city... That Abraham, that God led Abraham to, was only a shadow and a type of the city that Abraham actually sought for, and you can see this in uh, Hebrews chapter uh, eleven, verse eight. By faith, when uh, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and in went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking for forward to a city with foundations, who architect and builder is God. So let me ask you this question. John 14, Jesus says he goes to prepare a place. Isaiah 66, God says he will build right, a dwelling. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says that if the earthly tent is destroyed we have a building with God. Jesus says I will build my I will build my church. So what's the building? And and who is building it? God is building it. And that new building is the creation, the new creation, right? Was Abraham looking for that building, according to Hebrews 11, verse 10? For he was looking forward to a city, the same city mentioned in Hebrews 12, the same city that the writer says we have come unto, with foundations who architect and builder is God. It says in verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Wait, wait a minute. I thought Abraham received the land that God said he would enter into. He received the foreshadow. But the text is explicitly stating he did not receive the things that we have received. But from afar off, they welcomed them. Look at what it says. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. It that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. What is this country? If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country. The same country says that we've entered into, Hebrews 12, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Um baby if if uh never mind, that's that's fine. Verse sixteen again. And instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Right Hebrews twelve. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The city is the heavenly Jerusalem. So God still has a Jerusalem. It's just not the Jerusalem that the Samaritan woman was looking at in John chapter 4. And we worship there. In the heavenly Jerusalem that Galatians 4 says is the mother of us all. But nonetheless, look at Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse ten. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Do you know what he was referring to? And this, I'm closing my Bible now, so I'm, I'm done reading verses. So I, I know that. Uh... <coughs> Did anybody know what, what um what tabernacle he was referring to? The tabernacle in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. Amen. Thank you. So so remember the whole the whole point of why the writer of Hebrews is writing this is because he's contrasting covenants. The temple was still standing at the time when which he wrote this. And so there was an altar in that temple and the Levitical priests who were administering or ministering at that altar had a right to eat from it as commanded in the book of Leviticus because the priests were to receive a portion. Now, why is he saying now? (coughs) Why was there an altar who commanded that altar to be there? I want someone for other than Malachi to to use their brains for a little bit. Uh so I'm I'm calling on some of us here. Um So that altar. Who commanded that altar in the in the temple? Any brave volunteers? Aiden, what do you think, boy Kanye? what do you think? Yes, yes, thank you. God did now. Today, we're so warped in our thinking, we think, oh, you know, I'm worshiping God. I'm singing sloppy wet kiss, right? I'm singing David Crowder brand, a band, uh, uh, God is going to be a sloppy wet kiss. Huh? Right? Which that's sloppy wet theology. That's what that is. Um, But that's that's not worship, When the Jews had given their offerings to God, that was worship. And when they gave the offerings, who did they give it to? Did they just throw up a calf to God and say, hey, receive it, Lord. (laughs) Did they do that? They say, oh, you know, God, here here you go. Catch it. (laughs) Go. One, (laughs) two, three. Go. (laughs) Did they do that? I'm being facetious, but I need you to get my point. No. Who did they give it to? Any brave volunteers? Who who did they give the offerings to? (coughs) Denise, you want to answer this one? Yes, they gave it to the priests. But wait a minute. I thought they gave it to God. They gave it to God. Through... The priests, they didn't give to God by giving to a homeless man. They gave to a homeless man. <laughs> when you give to a homeless man, you don't give to God. I hope you know that. You give to the homeless man. Here you go. You know why it says give to God? First of all, the priests are the representatives of God. Number two, when you pay tithes, you're not giving your check. You're giving a tenth of what is called. God's, God lays claim on that 10th. It's not yours. So when you say, oh, I have to give my 10th, it's not your 10th. What are you talking about? It's God's. It's Even if it's in your possession, it's still God's. So that if you spend it, you're robbing God. And you give to... You give to... You see? So when you give to the homeless man... Oh, I'm gonna just give my chance to the homeless man or to the widow. No, who? So hold on. Let me get this straight. If I left my phone at your house and you knew it's mine, it's not yours to give. Why are you giving it to a homeless man? You think I'm gonna be happy? But my heart was right. I gave it to a homeless man. But it's mine. It's not yours. Did I tell you to do that? Did I command you to do that? No. So why do we think it's okay to give our tithes to a homeless man? Because we're more compassionate than God, right? No, we're we're rebellious. And we don't want to submit to God because we don't like God's ways. We like our ways, and we want to offer strange fire on the altar and do things and worship God in our own way in which God did not command. Strange fire isn't what John MacArthur says it is with people speaking in tongues. Strange fire is what these people are doing today by worshiping God in their own way, right? They're having people that are not called to be ministers become ministers, They're having gay people uh, 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 be ministers and and receive stuff uh, in the name of the Lord. Amen. And I'm not saying people that have used to be gay and, you know, might struggle, you know, with same-sex attraction and they fight it, they hate it, and and they they go to the Lord. Now, I'm talking about people openly gay. Amen. I want to make that clear. Um. Uh, you know, like the Anglican church, that's strange fire, or stealing tithes, that's strange fire, and say, I'm giving to a homeless man, God, no, no, you're not, because the tithe isn't yours to give, my phone isn't yours to give, now, once you've paid 10th, everything else is yours to do what you want to do, as long as it's righteous, does that make sense? So, if you want to give to a homeless man, go ahead and give, But the point that I'm making, though, is that in the earthly tabernacle, they had an altar. They had an altar, and the priest had a right to eat from that altar. And that altar, when they gave their offerings, that was worship. And so, does anybody know where the temple was? It was in Jerusalem. So, when you go to John 4... And we see Jesus addressing the Samaritan woman, and she says, oh, look, on this mountain, right? Jesus says, look, I'm not, the time is coming when people aren't going to worship the Lord on the mountain. Okay, last thing from that, that verse, he says, but we have an altar, from which those who serve in the earthly tabernacle have no right to eat from. So two things he's saying. Number one is that the writer of Hebrews considers himself a priest, but not a priest after the Levitical order, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Number two, it's assuming that there is an altar. So my question to us is this. Anybody, bra- anybody brave enough to answer it? Where was the altar that the writer of Hebrews says he ate from? It was spiritual. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> So he, he's not like he's telling the church, hey, bring me your lambs. That's not what that's not what's going on. It's a spiritual altar. So worship is still in the new covenant. Priesthood is still in the new covenant. Blood is still in the new covenant. It's just that Christ's blood was put on the altar in heaven. He is high priest, but he has priests under him. So when people say I'm under grace, but they ignore the order that God has given, they're not under grace. No less nor no more than the people who said they were under law in the Old Covenant, but didn't submit to the Levites. They weren't under law. They weren't in Moses. If they say, I don't want to get circumcised, the heck with that. But I keep the Ten Commandments, and I read Torah. I just don't get circumcised. I just don't pay tithes. I just don't go to Jerusalem as it's often commanded. I don't partake in the uh, the Feast of Booths. I don't partake in the harvest. I don't take uh, partake in the Day of Atonement. I don't partake in the the Passover. I don't do all that stuff. I just do me. I just read. I read Torah, though. Do you see that? Do you see? Do you see how the, there's the connection there. So, I'm going to stop there. I know it's a lot, and probably more than, and I hope it's not more than what we understand. But I I want to.